Welcome to the Off the X podcast, where we talk about overseas security operations and how the U.S. government protects our diplomats serving internationally, oftentimes in high threat locations. In particular, we discuss the Diplomatic Security Service and all of those who support the DS mission. I'm Cody, your host. This is episode 10. And in this podcast, we had on Julie Cabus. Julie is a member of the Senior Foreign Service. She is the first active duty special agent to come on the podcast. She's also the first female to come on the podcast. And uh, she does a fantastic job articulating her story um, of her time, 20 or so years in the department, serving in Pakistan, Iraq, Afghanistan, all over Africa, and in multiple different directorates in the uh, diplomatic security service. So listen in, listen to Julie, and I'll catch you all on the backside. Thanks, y'all. Out. You're the so you're the first active agent that we've had on, and you're also the first female agent we have on. A very senior active agent, by the way. Um, just uh, tell us kind of a little bit about yourself, your maybe your background before DS, and uh, your background in DS. Uh, maybe a thirty thousand foot view because you've done a lot, and then we'll kind of drill down on some different areas. Sure. Um, well, I guess I should just start by saying that. Um, when you consider or you look at where I've come from or who I am, I probably was never meant to be in DS. Um, I grew up in New England, spent my whole life there, graduated from the same high school my parents went to. Uh, and graduating from college, I immediately joined the Peace Corps. And I spent two years in Gabon, Central Africa, where I learned to you know, hone my skills in French, and I was a the community health educator, so working on things like maternal child health issues, diarrheal disease issues, HIV/AIDS at the time. Subsequent to my return from the Peace Corps, I kind of floundered around for a little bit, looking for steady work. Uh, landed long-term substitute teaching of all things French to high schoolers, which I look back down and I think, boy, that was probably. Um, a waste of four months of their time, not so much mine, um, and and spend some time just trying to figure out what I wanted to do. Uh, I knew that law enforcement was always a dream, uh, something in the back of my mind that I always wanted to do, but cert- certainly in the mid to late 90s, um, there was very little hiring going on. Many law enforcement agencies were not funded well and certainly weren't hiring. And I distinctly remember sitting um, at the kitchen table at my parents' house, looking at a copy of the Boston Globe and down in the lower right-hand corner of the want ads, the, the uh, Sunday paper, it said something to the effect of the State Department is hiring or looking for law enforcement and security officers. And because of my time in the Peace Corps, I had a vague notion of what DS did. So I grabbed the paper, cut out the ad, and then went forward with the application process. In the meantime, however, um, very dear friends of mine turned me on to a job possibility, a job opportunity, working in, a, in the corporate boating world in, for a company in Sarasota, Florida, obviously probably one of the best well-known boat manufacturers in the world is Chris Craft. So I, uh, while my application was pending with DS, I 
ended up moving to Florida and started working for Chris Craft Boats. I had spent uh, summers on Lake Winnipesaukee, New Hampshire, working for a marina and got a lot of boating experience that translated well into the corporate boating industry. So again, you know, back to my opening statement of I probably was never destined to be in DS, but DS being DS, it turns out that I'm a really good fit for DS. Uh, interviewed out of Florida and um, received my conditional offer of employment and started with basic special agent training class 52 in March of 1999. Um, when the East Africa bombings occurred and then subsequently the uh, tragedy of 9-11 occurred, you know, many law enforcement organizations to include DS received a large influx of money to hire, specifically just to hire. And for DS also, it meant um, to uh, put a lot of money into security infrastructure and upgrades for our, our really sort of forgotten about embassies around the world. As a result, um, I spent about a year uh, at the Washington field office. And then because of my French language skills and my ability uh, previously having lived in Africa, I was among the group of people that were tagged quite early on to head out overseas. So from that point forward, at a you know around uh, summer of 2000, I did subsequent assignments in Kinshasa, uh, the old Zaire, the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Niamey, Niger in West Africa, and then Peshawar, Pakistan. Um, over that period of time, um, once I had concluded my tour in Pesh. In the summer of 2004, I returned to the United States uh, and joined the staff of the Executive Secretariat, um, commonly known as the RSO, as it were, for uh, the seventh floor at the State Department. Um, that was an out of what they call an out-of-cone tour, so I was not so much in the fold of DS, but representing DS. And I will tell you that for me as an agent, it made me a better agent to have done two years in that environment. Following that, um, I was assigned to one-year professional military education and master's degree program with the Marine Command and Staff College down in Quantico. I was among 14 students out of the total number of 200 uniformed military personnel, and that was a phenomenal year as well. It was time then to go back out overseas, and um, at this point, I was married and had two children, two of my three kids, and I was assigned to Algiers, Algeria, and then subsequently Canberra, Australia. Upon my return from Australia in 2011, my family and I got settled back here in Northern Virginia, and I went to run the Defensive Equipment and Armored Vehicle Program, also known as DEAV, uh, for diplomatic security. No more so than any other position I'd ever worked in in my life did I utilize my boating skills, and when it, taught, and it came time to translate some of the the, the building techniques and things like that into uh, armored vehicle technology. After DEAV, I did a year in Kabul. Uh, subsequent to Kabul, it was a time to come back to Washington, and I worked and uh, ran our Dignitary Protection Division, so uh, the group that's responsible for protecting all foreign dignitaries that come to the United States, and then our resident details like the Saudi ambassador and also the United States permanent representative to the United Nations, so the U.S.-U.N. ambassador. After dignitary protection, I went and uh, worked for Office of Overseas Protective Operations in the Worldwide Protective Services, WPS, program. From uh, 
which oversees the multi-million dollar contract for contracted security services in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. After the WIPS program, um, I became the senior regional security officer for the United States mission to Iraq, which was the summer of 2018 through summer of 2019. And since then, I've been back in the U.S. I started um, a year ago, just over a year ago, as the office director for intelligence and threat analysis. But now I'm the acting deputy as deputy director for threat intelligence excuse me, threat analysis and investigations. I apologize. My ac- the acronyms really get me sometimes, even after 21 and a half years or so. So um, I'm very proud to say that over the course of my career, I have managed to serve in every single directorate within the Bureau of Diplomatic Security, with the exception of training. And I still have a little bit of time left before I can consider retirement. So I, I do have some goals to achieve. I'd like to be able to have said that I've served in every directorate, but I'm not 100% certain I'll achieve that goal, but I'm going to try. Wow. Yeah. Well, you've certainly achieved uh, enough already. I mean, uh, go, I don't know where to start, Julie. We only have what, a couple hours. Um, no, that's that's great. Way, I think those that know me well will know that I'm not afraid to answer questions, and and certainly, you know, with the disclaimer that these are my opinions and that not that of the United States government, I'm certainly willing to answer candidly and uh, to the best of my knowledge. Yeah, completely understood. Uh, some of these uh, offices you worked at, we I've never touched e- either on social media or any of these podcasts, particularly the the Bureau Security Officer uh, at, at what you call the Regional Security Officer of the seventh floor in uh, Main State, and then DEAV and DP. Um, but I kind of want to start at the beginning, and initially I was going to ask about training and everything, but you kind of touched on how you came on. Uh, you know, right, right. Was it right after uh, the Tanzania and Kenya bombings, and how things were kind of full speed ahead? But how was it? Because you you said you spent one year in the field office, and then you went out to Niamey, um, which is, to Kinshasa. Niamey yeah. was your second tour. Okay, to Kinshasa. Uh, how was that? So that was your one and only ARSO tour. How was that being on the African continent? Like what a year after, or maybe two years after. Uh, the attack. Yeah, I would say it was a very interesting time. Um, you know, I think every agent will tell you that their first overseas tour remains very near and dear to them, even 20 plus years later. And I would definitely say that about Kinshasa. The challenge you had is here we we had two awful tragedies, almost a third, because people forget also too that um, the East Africa bombings also encompassed but did not succeed with the U.S. Embassy in Uganda in Kampala. And so you had two in a near-miss third tragedy on, on the continent. And you're looking at a continent that is massive in size and scope and culture and people and influence from many, many years of colonialism, et cetera. Most of these countries that you're dealing with only just gotten their independence in the 1960s. And so they're just these nascent countries that are trying their best and you recognize that the the host nation capacity to really prevent anything is is difficult to ascertain difficult to count on difficult to to manage and so you try very hard with limited resources limited circumstances you know at the time it was myself 
a regional security officer in a Marine detachment of, of essentially seven Marines that we really had to do a lot of stock and inventory and assess a, in the, in the event of a crisis, what could we do? What are we capable of B what should we be trying to do that we aren't currently doing and C in what way, whatever way possible, could we potentially build the capacity of the government to render aid if we needed it? So Kinshasa, I think, foundationally for me, set the tone for how I went about doing the work for the rest of my career. And I remember leaving Kinshasa early, curtailing out of Kinshasa early to take the RSO job in Niamey because it had been vacant for almost eight consecutive months and Post saw a real need, a real gap there that they needed someone on a more permanent basis. And just trying to, you know, filling notebooks full of, of remember to do this, remember to do that, reminders to myself so that when I got to NEMA and I was building the program there and kind of making sure that things were where they were supposed to be, that I took all those lessons learned from Kinshasa. And I, and I remember subsequently to that leaving NEMA, and DS said, well, where do you want to go? What do you want to do? I said, I need to go to Peshawar. I said, I have had great experience dealing with like civil unrest protests, you know, in countries where governments struggle a little bit. I said, but I don't have that sort of counterterrorism angle and I need to round out my, my skill set with, you know, being someplace where at this point in time, it was past 9-11. Uh, Pakistan was really sort of pivotal in, in our, our charge in, into Afghanistan. And, and I said, I, I need that level of experience. Whereas, you know, I'm sure most people would have said, okay, let me write my ticket and go back to Washington. I said, let me write my ticket and go someplace that allows me to expand my skill set a little bit more. So I look at the history or the succession of my first three posts, certainly Kinshasa, but and then subsequently Niamey and Peshawar as the foundation for how I went about doing my job for the rest of my career, because it was just, they were so fundamentally informative and important. And um, I say informative, but also formative um, in how I approached the specifically the job of being an RSO. Yeah. So those are the continent of Africa is, has kind of, threats all over and it seems there's very similar threats across that there's maybe some criminal threats or potential natural disaster threats but terrorist threats in a number of different places um and there are some places that are a little bit uh safer when you go to pakistan uh maybe not the case in particular peshawar what was peshawar like how was it not just as an rso but how was living there uh, and, and tell us where it is, actually. I, I have a kind of an idea, but uh, yeah. just talk about Peshawar, your work there, the living, the lifestyle. Yeah, so Peshawar is in the northwest frontier province, uh, is in the northwest frontier frontier province of Pakistan. So it's uh, probably most people would recognize it as a jumping off point to get into the Khyber Pass, which takes you into, into Afghanistan. Um, I, I distinctly remember the the chief of police, who was probably my only police contact that would publicly and openly shake my hand. But he was not from Pesh; he was from Lahore. So he was he was an outsider in Pesh, and he would he took me aside about halfway through my tour. He said, "You really have to stop driving here." He goes, "It's just it's just 
the people here can't handle it. They just, they, they, you make them uneasy, you know, because apparently as an American, as a, as a woman, uh, unaccompanied at the time while I was married, my husband wasn't with me, you know, they just, it was, um, they just didn't know how to handle it. They didn't know what to do with me. Um, and of course, you know, I politely declined and said, no, I, I, I have to be able to drive. I have to be able to do my work. The work was challenging. You know, the U.S., it's no secret that the U.S. relationship with Pakistan runs hot and cold sometimes. Um, you have, as with all of, our, all of our locally engaged staff all around the world, very, very dedicated people who believe in the value of the, and value the relationship between the two nations. Uh, living conditions were, you know, uh, comfortable. There was not a whole lot to do. You know, for us being in Pesh in the early 2000s, uh, we, we, we would fight, frankly, who got to make the commissary run down to Islamabad because it was a, a bit of a mini vacation, as it were. You were, you were supporting the consulate, but you were also sort of getting out of that isolated feel of, of, the, of the place. Um, obviously, uh, Peshawar being the jumping off point to the Cairo Pass and the entryway into Afghanistan, you had, the, I think at the time, it was the largest refugee camp in the world. And it was Afghan refugees who were still there in the early 2000s from the, the Afghan-Russian war uh, in the 80s. And so it was just a, an amalgamation of a lot of different things in this one town that, you know, when in hindsight, people look back and they say, well, you know, Osama bin Laden's madrasa was in Peshara and no one is surprised by it, you know. So uh, madrasa being his Islamic education center. So um you definitely uh, appreciate uh, the little things. And I remember coming home from Peshawar and just, you know, standing in the driveway at one point in time and of the house that we, we bought shortly after my return and realizing that nobody gave a care if I got in my car and drove around town or not, unlike the previous year when clearly it was something that the, the Pakistanis were struggling with. But in the end, um, my time there was well spent. Again, very informative, very formative for me for skill sets that I have uh, capitalized on and kept and utilized throughout my whole career. Um, it's breathtakingly beautiful up in that part of the world. I managed before things got really bad to get into the Swat Valley, which is was gorgeous and and just amazing and 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 made you appreciate just how wonderful this world is that where the, where just the physical beauty of things is makes you stop and take a long, hard look at where, where you are and what's around you. So uh, from that perspective, I feel like that time there was very well spent. Yes. Yeah, sounds like it. Um, I do want to ask, you mentioned about the, the, uh, the police chief, one of the police chiefs uh, shaking your hand and then mm-hmm. the commentary about them uh, having a problem with you, you driving. And it, it obviously uh, it's a male dominated culture in Pakistan and several uh, uh, government governments that are, are predominantly Muslim. How did, and liaison is important, right? To, for, for you to, to have these relationships with whether it be the local police or what, what we would consider the federal police. How did that impact, your work being being a female in uh in pakistan uh it's interesting you said because i was thinking of this story the other day because I, I don't know for some reason it just I, it came out of the blue um 
we had the frontier constabulary was the the supporting police element that uh, was around the consulate in Peshawar, um, and they were our first sort of our host nation line of defense, as it were. And the frontier constabulary chief at the time was a very very nice person. He was incredibly hospitable and just spoke impeccable English and just easy to get along with. And when we were one-on-one, it was like, like being with my brother. Um, and he, he whispered to me one day, he goes, do you like to go shooting? And I said, you know, I can say no, or I can say yes to this. And I said, yes. And he said, we'll come out to the frontier constabulary range. He's like, we'll have a whole bunch of stuff out there for you to try. Okay, great. That's awesome. Um, I was really excited. I thought, okay, you know, making progress. He trusts me. He likes me. Well, I drive out to the frontier constabulary and the range and sure enough, he's laid out all this stuff. There's confiscated weapons from skirmishes with India. There's the the regular duty uh, weapons from the, from the uh, frontier constabulary, you know, core what they use. And then I had, um, uh, taken with me some things as well. And we just had this really great day out on the range. And he's like, he says, to, he says to me, he goes, my best shooter wants to, to shoot with you. And I said, okay, that's great. Now I do not purport to be the best shooter DS has ever had. In fact, I would tell you that I'm not the best shooter that DS has ever had, particularly with handguns. I, I have very small hands and I'm one of these oddball left, you know, right eye dominant left hand shooter people that drives the firing range crazy. But be that as it may, I was like, hey, I'm game. This is, there's you know, no harm, no foul. I think I can hang with this guy. We'll be all right. So we get down on the firing line. He's like, have you ever shot a dragon off? I said, no, let me have this thing. I, you know, what do I, what do I know? What am I getting myself into? And I'm, I'm shoulder to shoulder with the frontier constabulary shooter and we're having a grand old time. And, and I hung in with him. I, I, I did really, really well. And, but I didn't want to embarrass him either because I know that he would never live it down if he lost to me, the, the woman. So I knew, I kind of knew how to play things out a little bit. Um, and so we, we, in the end, the, the, it was a tie as it were, our score was a tie, whether or not I maybe threw my last shot that will never, I will never say publicly, but be that as it may, um, just that type of activity. I, I had a partner, I had a group of people who just, you know, were very responsive when I needed it. And, and frankly, I got what it out of it, what I needed in order to help keep the consulate safe. And I just, I felt like that was really important. I didn't want to embarrass this poor fellow, but I needed to know, I needed, I needed to strike that, that balance. And I was successful in doing so. And I, and I look back on that experience as one, probably one of the best I had when I was in Pakistan that year. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story. You know, relationships matter um, they do. In, these, in these places. And uh, when I talk to these aspiring DS agents, I, I, you know, they ask, hey, what's the best career path or what should I do? What can I make myself, you know, what can I do to make myself more competitive? And, you know, the, the basic requirements you have is, is be a U.S. citizen, uh, have a degree, and be eligible for a worldwide assignment. And I say the real key is to be able to uh, show the panel that you have interpersonal skills and that you have critical thinking skills. And I think that story reflects there. One, you're very personable. Uh, and two, stopping and throwing that last shot, because we know you did, Julie, uh, 
you know, just 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 saved face for uh, at least for that guy, and you know, maybe even for your relationship. But yeah, uh, that's awesome. You know, it's it's really hard to to uh, you know tell people the the just the different things we get into at these different assignments and like that's not a, a story you write in a book but there's so many of these small impactful stories that you have at post that make a difference um, you, you really do i you know f- fast forward to 2018 2019 we did a, a a day at the u.s embassy in baghdad for refugee kids right and i think at this point i was probably month four into about a five and a half month stint where i hadn't gotten home yet to see my family and just seeing those kids running around in the embassy, like it was both amazing to see them laughing and smiling and having fun and seeing the American staff running around and playing soccer and doing all these different things. And it was heartbreaking at the same time because I missed my kids so much. It was awful. And you realize at that point in time that no matter where you are in the world, no matter what you're doing in the world, it's not where you are or what you're doing, but it's who you're with. And, and whether you're in Peshawar and you're outside and are shooting range, or you are meeting with kids or in Iraq or in any of these locations, it's just the, the people you surround yourself with. And those that are most successful in DS absolutely recognize the importance and the value of good interpersonal skills, inviting in diversity, inviting in intellectual equals in the sense that you may not always agree, but you're able to really look at a problem set and find a solution. It may not be the perfect solution, but you're going to get yourself to within 80% or better because you recognize that oftentimes the solution that serves more people is better than the solution that serves just the one person. And so again, spot on, if anyone's ever looking to join this organization and to make it a career and to put, invest your time and and energy into it and, and make sacrifices along the way, fundamentally you have to be a very strong interpersonal communicator. And I'm not saying you have to be an extrovert, but what I am saying is that you have to be able to build, maintain and cultivate relationships because that's how we get our job done. We are, we do not work in vacuums. We're not riding in a one man show on a horse to save the day. It is a absolutely a team effort. And uh, anyone that's had, a modicum of success in DS, I think would agree with that statement. And, and for anyone that doesn't agree with it, then I would challenge them and ask them why or how they've, they've been doing if they've been a solo act for so long. I think the answer would be that probably not as well as they could be. And they're probably exhausted. Yeah, I bet the, the importance of relationship, and I, you know, I was using it in the context, in particular, with you know your local security apparatus. Yep. But internal relationships in the in the consulate matter, from the you know the FS four political officer to the deputy consul general, you know, all those matter. And and to your point with these these young kids in Baghdad, uh, I did the same thing in Vietnam, in in that I I uh, convinced a new consul general to go out and do. Uh, you know, we did a, a build for uh, Habitat with Humanity, 
and to do more external things. And I, and I recall the conversation. I was acting RSO at the time, and she asked, what can we do to, to be better in uh, – the mind, like to win the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese people here in South Vietnam. And I was the only acting guy there and I was on my way out. So I was a little more gutsy at the time. Um, and she was, she was great. She was awesome. She, she and I still have a great relationship, but we went around and, and, and kind of buddy, everyone kind of had their own self-interest and was related to their office. So whether it be consular or political or economic, they had, you know, it was related to their office and I was very blunt, and I used the exact words. I said, we need to let them know that we give a shit. Because everything we were doing was so right. so self-serving. And I said, you know, I've been going out with the local Vietnamese staff to these orphanages for months. I'd like to, you to come out there with us. And she just thought that was the greatest thing ever. And, uh, and you know, but it wasn't – and then, you know, but the local police are very involved with their – community not in a good way all the time in vietnam but they started to see that and i think that had an impact on our relationship with the police because they saw that we actually we weren't just there to kind of pound our policy and you know human rights uh you know with the vietnamese government we're there to to kind of make the place better um so anyway that's my thoughts on relationships yeah and i think I think over the course of the last 20 years with within DS, at least for me and my experience has been that the regional security officers, very little within the embassy that the RSO doesn't touch or the consulate doesn't matter. There's very little that we don't touch. So why not be involved? You know, it's, you're there anyway, make the most of it. Plus, I think that what we do is essentially incredibly interesting. And we have a tendency, particularly overseas, to have access to a lot of things that most people would never have privy to or, or be involved in just by the mere nature of our inject into local police departments and their ability to touch on a lot in their own community. And so oftentimes I find myself or I found myself in these situations being invited along to go do things that were just like, Hey, are you interested in seeing this? You want to, you know, watch us as we go, you know, every year, for example, um, in Niger, you know, the police would just kind of go out and visit a lot of the rural localities and just, you know, again, check in on folks and see what was going on and, and talk with the village chiefs, et cetera. And, you know, Niger, for example, has one of the last um, wild um, African herds and excuse me, wild African giraffe herds in West Africa. And so the village chief that was out there, you know, he recognized, for example, the importance of keeping this herd healthy. And so he was constantly harping on making sure that that uh, the Nigerians supported bringing in veterinarians and others to make sure that this herd stayed stayed in good stead. And the police were like, Oh, the chief needs help doing the annual count. Do you want to come help us count giraffes this year? I was like, are you kidding me? Where do I sign up? How do I get, what do I, what do I have to do? And it was just, you know, it's the, it's, it's, you're there. You might as well be involved. You might as well extend that goodwill as much as possible um, and make the most of it. So uh, in the end, it, 
if anything, it leaves you with some significantly fond memories of your time, but it also puts a name and a face to, to what most people consider to be the single biggest export of America. And that's our cultural, our, um, our, you know, our, our cultural well-being, our gregariousness, our generosity of spirit, et cetera. So, you know, if it works, it works. And you, you simply find yourself saying yes to things and you look back over time and you go, holy cow, I really had a chance to do that. And that was amazing. And I would do it all over again. Very well said. So what was next um, after Peshawar? Where'd you go? Uh, went back to Washington. At this point in time, I was uh, recently married and, you know, my husband and I knew that we needed to have some time together and DC was the best location to do that both for, for him and for, for me. Um, I was, is, I interviewed for, was selected to be the bureau security officer for uh, the seventh floor, which is, you know, obviously the, the, the heavy hitters of the state department, all the senior leadership to include the secretary of state. And I was there at a time between Colin Powell and uh, Condoleezza Rice, both historically significant and groundbreaking personnel uh, to to assume the position of Secretary of State uh, because Colin Powell was the first ever uh, black American and then uh, Condoleezza Rice was the first ever black female uh, Secretary of State. Both were incredibly gracious, both were incredibly smart, and both did, um, in their own way, significant improvements to the department Um and so working in that environment, while perhaps a non-traditional environment for a DS special agent, again, perhaps turned me into a much better agent because I, I feel like I obtained an incredibly profound perspective on where DS fits into the overall scheme of things within the Department of State. Um, and, you know, Terminology can be tossed around a bit blithely and, and used, you know, in order to to overstate things or what have you. But more often than not, I found myself recognizing, advocating for, and and understanding the concept of being an enabler in a positive way, not the pejorative way of the of the term enabling. You know, not like buying the alcoholic their booze, but more like finding a way to get to yes. Um, and more like trying to ensure that uh, we are 100% supporting the mission of the Department of State. And I really enjoyed the opportunity to peek behind the curtain to see the large mechanism of the seniors, senior most levels of the department and how they worked and the part that I played to make sure that, you know, we had the right people in the right place at the right time with the right security clearances, advising on how, you know, uh, and working with RSOs overseas and, and, and supporting the secretary's travel, all those different things. And again, it was separate from the secretary of state protective detail. This was more about policy and program implementation as opposed to uh, uh, executing her, her physical protection. But it really, it's an amazing job. It's a, it's a job that allows the individual who sits in that seat, incredible exposure to the state department, but moreover, it allows the state department to interact with DS on a very personal level. Um, and so I appreciated that opportunity more so, I think, after I left the job than when I perhaps had the job. And I worked with some incredibly talented people who, to this day, 
I'd have absolutely no problem picking up the phone and calling and they've all ascended to the most senior, most ranks of the department. And it's made, uh, it's made me very proud to have said that I was there at a time when, when we were, uh, when the secretary of state was doing an awful lot. And, um, you know, of course, Afghanistan and Iraq were really just consuming much of the policy of, of, of the U S at the time. And, um, I enjoyed it a lot and I would do it all over again. And I think consistently over the course of the time that we talk, Cody, you'll hear me say, I really liked it. I would do it all over again. Um, because I can't think with very few exceptions, um, the, of, of any jobs in DS that I wouldn't gladly sign up for again. Probably a common phrase used by all current former DS agents that would yeah. do it all over again. I know I would, and I would, I would, I look back and think of some things I'd I'd like to do. Uh, yeah, I do have some regrets. I, I wish I made it to the African continent, for example, uh, not just for TDY, but for a permanent tour. But I mean, you know, uh, life happens. It but, does. Uh, so the Bureau of Security Officer that that was your your title there, right? Bureau of Security Officer. That's correct. Yeah. Is okay. And were you also responsible for? Um, kind of the traditional RSO responsibilities uh, like the guard force and the, uh, those elements at yeah, main so, state. So we, um, we had what was called at the time, and I don't know if the, the moniker is the same these days, but on the seventh floor, you have uh, some access control personnel that uh, wore blue blazers. We called them the blue coats. This is a fantastic story. I had a young, young blue coat up there who controlled access essentially into the suite of the secretary and they, she was at, she was working and all secretaries would have any manner of visitors coming and going and just the, you from one day to the next, you never knew who's going to show up unless you knew what the schedule was. So long story short, here's this young blue coat. Oh, and I should preface this by saying too, that behind and all, all along the walls of this area, there were uh, uh, painted portraits of former secretaries of state. You know, Kissinger, Baker, the whole cadre of former secretaries. Well, on the schedule that day was Henry Kissinger. He was coming up to see, I think it was uh, Dr. Rice at the time. So he comes in and the blue coat politely says, sir, uh, you know, basically, who are you? And he goes, young lady, if you do not know who, my, who I am, you must look over your shoulder. And right over her shoulder was his portrait. This poor young blue coat, I think she probably uh, regrets that day. However, I think that's one of the funniest stories I've ever come across in my career, poor thing. Um, but very, you know, very Dr. Kissinger-esque, just if you don't know who I am, please look over your shoulder. <laughs> so uh, you, you got all manner of folks. Uh, I remember having to ask Bono, the singer, uh, to, this is, of course is dating myself, to, I had to remind him and then subsequently take off his purse and his Blackberry because he wasn't allowed to have it in the um in in the area in which he was meeting with uh, secretary rice at the time and and you know tom cruise uh, you'd be surprised the number of these these uh, you know hollywood type folks uh, very sort of influential people they have um, some significant um diplomatic initiatives uh, a lot of it's dealing with refugee issues a lot of it is dealing with conflict issues um and so 
they would regularly and routinely come onto the seventh floor of the State Department in order to, dare I say, entice the U.S. to take greater leadership roles or to discuss the manner in which these conflicts could be resolved. And um, it was interesting to see uh, how uh, that played out just from the perspective of face-to-face meetings and the value of those meetings. And, you know, in the time of COVID, when everything is done remotely now and people are championing the the value of uh, remote telework and not being, you know, in the same room as someone, I perhaps would push back a little bit and say, you know, there is value to being in the same room with people. I saw it every day when I was up there for those two years. And, and it just, it meant something when you could sit across the table from someone and look at them and say, look, we need your help or this part of the world needs your help. And this is why this is important. And, uh, and so from that perspective, those, that time, that time there was very well spent as well. Yeah, absolutely. What, uh, what year were you there? I, I, I'm familiar with the blue coats and that's before my time in DS. That's, uh, a, a, a buddy of mine who was we the best man in my wedding. We used to have a lot of former Marines. That's probably yeah, why. Marines yeah, Security a lot Guard. of former MSGs. Uh, so that, right. for me, that was 2004 to 2006. Do you happen to remember any of their names? And it's okay if you don't. Uh, but maybe I'll send you a picture after this. Because my the best man in my wedding, uh, my best friend, was a blue coat. And before I got on with DS, after my time as a Marine Security Guard, um he invited me up to kind of to go look around and yeah. I don't think I've even been there actually as a DS, uh, as a DS candidate in BSAC, they take you up there, I believe, yes, or at right. least for us they did. But prior to that, prior to that, I had gone up there and, uh, and got to look around, you know, and he showed me what he could. And, uh, but anyway, well, you shoot I'll send me his you a name. picture. If you, don't, if you don't want to say it now, uh, you shoot me his name. No, I'll and I'll probably, yeah. yeah. Nick, uh, so Nick and my husband are good friends. Oh, come on. <laughs> yeah. Nick works for me. Yeah. Nick's fantastic. Yeah. yeah. Nick, and, okay. Nick and my husband know each other quite well. Yeah. All right. Well, this is there's small a, there's world. a small world, Cody. That's right. It is Nick and I. Uh, so when he got out of the Marine Corps, we were roommates together. We were, so we were Moscow Marines together, Nick and I. Okay. And then when he got out, we both, uh, we roomed together. We went to George Mason and I was the best man at his wedding. He was the best man at, man at mine recently. And, uh, you know, I've slept on his couch with his, you know, while he had his family, he has two kids now, uh, yep. but we're getting into personal stuff, but he's a great guy and I'm going to tell him about this. And now he has to listen. Yes. No choice. Yes. He had to listen to me for quite some time, so he can, it'll be like going home for him. Yeah, good. Oh, yeah, Nick's great. Awesome. Uh, it's, it is wow, what a small world. Yeah, yeah, it is. And look, anyway. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you right now. Um, no one should ever underestimate the importance um, that DS places on the value of, you know, family. You don't always get along. No family ever does, but. You know, once you're in, it's hard to let go, whether you're a former MSG, whether you're a WPS contractor, whether you are a civil servant, whether you are a foreign service member of the DS family, you're in. It's it, You're in. And it's like, yeah. it, 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 you know, it's, it is the non-controversial, non, non-law-breaking mafia, as it were. Yeah. 
there's something to be said about a shared experiences when you're overseas, no matter what capacity yeah. you're in at these embassies, you're, you're kind of, you know, the, the whole phrase now we're all in this together. That was happening with us at these different posts. You know, yeah. there's, uh, a lot going on and the communities tend to be the best communities are when they're, when they're really tight knit communities at these, at these posts. And, uh, well, look, you, you invest I, I, the other day I was visiting, um, the new foreign affairs, uh, security training center known as fast speed down in Blackstone, Virginia. And I was addressing a class full of foreign service officers who are about to head out overseas to some, some challenging posts. And I said, you know, one thing you have to understand is that your RSO, your regional security officer, they worry. They worry about your safety, your well-being. They worry about your ability to get your job done. And, and I said, you know, your investment in this course that they were taking, I said, helps to diminish a little bit of that worry because you're learning really critical skills that that hopefully you'll never have to employ, but that the gives the RSO a little peace of mind that if you were in a car accident or you were in a in a uh, a kinetic type of event that you're going to come away with the wherewithal to, to protect yourself and those around you. There, it's, it is difficult in DS at times to separate the personal and the professional in the sense that you invest so much of who you are to do your job well. And again, to look after and to take care of people that are part of your community. And this, this runs the gamut from your American staff overseas to your locally engaged staff that um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard not to worry. It's hard not to, to just want the best for everybody and work to try to achieve that. And, you know, in DS people would joke and, and they would say, ah, oh, you do that. You, you take it that way. You, you execute your job that way because you're a mom. And, and, you know, my nickname in Kinshasa was mama security. And, and it was just, you know, I say, you know, I, no, I don't think so. I think you could put anybody in, in these shoes that I'm wearing and, and they're going to approach the job with a significant level of commitment and dedication. And maybe worry is a, a bit of a, a bad choice of words, but in the end, you, you really want to look after your people and you want to make sure that they're okay. And that's the hallmark of DS. And I think that's where that, that idea of family comes from. And I, I take it very personally, this, the successes and failures of people who have worked for me or who I have over the course of their careers mentored or, or invested in. And, and I strive to, to make sure that folks are getting out of the job, what they need. And, and even if it's, it's up to and including perhaps that the job's not the best fit for them anymore and they move on. And one of the things that I've remarked in listening to you is, is that even after leaving DS, you still remain very much connected to the community and still have very much a personal relationship with the community. And that speaks volumes, not only for you and the impact you made while you were on the job, but also um, it speaks volumes for, for the, that brotherhood, sisterhood that DS promotes. And I, I couldn't, I can't imagine spending and investing the past 21 years of my life and anything other than that. Yeah. You know, leadership is so important, um, in, uh, in, in anywhere in life, but in DSS specifically, cause you're oftentimes at assignments, uh, where it's just you and another person as the RSO and ARSO, and then maybe their family and your family. And, um, you know, you, there's that balance that you have to find between being a leader and hopefully the person that's in the quote unquote follower role 
understands that that line, but you still build that relationship and rapport with people, and it's 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 vital, and it's a lot. It's it's lasts a lifetime, you know. Yeah, it does absolutely. So, what was next after? Uh, uh, Marine Co- Marine Command and Staff College. So, I spent a year at Quantico. I was among fourteen civilians in a class of over two hundred uniformed personnel, predominantly Marines. Um, getting my master's degree in, in military studies. Um, it also afforded me the opportunity to uh, be pregnant and uh, shortly after we graduated to have my second child. So I was still, in, you know, I was uh, still in DS, but 100% my day job was focused on uh, my master's program. Uh, amazingly, I'm still in touch with my military advisor at the time, um, who retired as a colonel out of the Marine Corps, and a number of my classmates that uh, I was fortunate enough to be with are still an active duty Marine um, officer cadre, some of whom are now uh, one stars and have done incredibly well. Um, what an amazing year. Um, I don't know that I would have ever been able to get my master's degree in any other scenario where it wasn't my full-time job. But um, it was great. You know, I, I chose the Marine Command and Staff College because I knew for the rest of my career that I would be working with Marines in some capacity or another, and that's paid dividends. I've been all over the world, and people have tapped me on the shoulder, and they said, you and I were in school together, and sure enough, we were, and it was fantastic. In addition to being among the small number of cadre of civilians, of course, the, the male-to-female ratio was quite low as well, so... Um, it was just, uh, a glimpse into, into a world that I otherwise would never have seen it, had it not been for being in DS, I don't think. Um, and I just remember walking across the stage, picking up my diploma when the year was over and I forgive me the name of the commandant at the time in 2007 escapes me, but I, I think I could look it up and remember it quickly. But anyway, I was heavily pregnant with my second son and the commandant looks at me, hands me my diploma, and he kind of leans over and he whispers to me, he goes, ma'am, you understand that Marines do killing very well, but they don't do babies very well. He goes, please don't have this child now. <laughs> <laughs> of course, of course, I had, I had my son about two, about a week and a half later, but I just, that, that to me sums up the year. Like Marines do a lot of things really, really, really well. Um, and apparently killing is one of them, but not babies. And, and so from that perspective, uh, it, it just, I loved it. Um, I prided myself to some degree being the skunk at the picnic and reminding some of the Marines that, you know, in fact, you can't go storming the beaches in country X, Y, or Z. You have an ambassador, you have an embassy, uh, you right. have people like me there. Uh, and they, you know, it was, I think, uh, I learned a lot and they learned a lot. Um, and again, consistently, Cody, you'll hear me say I would do it all over again, but I definitely would do command and staff college all over again. Well, you have a lot of choices. Oh, not a lot, but there's several options, right. For, uh, for DS agents to get their master's degree. I know Marine Corps command and staff college is one, and you chose the best by the way. Yes. That's Not right. Opinion. Uh, what are the other ones? If did you know them off the top of your oh, head? Oh, sure. There's, you know, it depends. A lot of it's associated or attached with your rank and rank structure. At the time, I was an FS. I had just picked up my two. Okay. Um, so I was in class with majors or uh, like lieutenant colonel selects. So from the rank structure, that was a perfect time for me to be there. We were uh, similar in rank, but on the senior levels, 
there's also, you know, Carlisle, I think there's Leavenworth and there's, you know, other uh, similar facilities. But then as you get more senior, you can, uh, there's also NIU and then Eisenhower School. And then you can go up to Rhode Island for the Navy uh, and, and um, pursue higher degrees in that vein as well. And look, I, not everyone, you know, wants to get a master's degree, and it's certainly not a requirement of the job. But if you have a desire for senior or higher level education, and you can do it while the State Department is underwriting it for you, uh, you still maintain your status. You're on long term training. If you treat it like a nine to five, and you go in with the idea that you're going to represent the State Department and DS well, it is a fantastic opportunity. I mean, I I poured my heart into that master's degree. I was, you know, among the sort of uh, of the civilians whose thesis and things like that were, were in contention for writing awards. And, and I just, I, I lost out to a classmate of mine who was a Marine and, you know, he's a JAG officer writing about the Geneva convention. I'm happy to lose out to him. Um, so it's just a, a really f- effective use of our time, I think, because again, going back to the theme that we've talked about in, in the last close to an hour is the building of relationships, uh, I can connect with just about any Marine in that shared experience of command and staff college. And it brings you into the fold much quicker. I can remember sitting in Afghanistan at a, you know, in a 9:30 PM secure video teleconference. And I hear Julie, Julie Cabus, is that you? I look on the video screen and it's one of my classmates from command and staff college dialing in from another, another facility in Kabul. And I hadn't seen him since we graduated. And so we graduated in 2007 and this was 2013. So I just, you know, you, again, that small world aspect, the building of relationships, the, the ongoing um, uh, partnerships that you, you form. And uh, I would again, do it all over. Yeah, there's so much diversity in, in, in DS with regards to who we deal with, whether it, you know, everything from the local law enforcement when you're domestic to military leaders, military officers. You could be at the, uh, you know, one of the regional commands. I know we have one down in South Florida uh, or overseas, and we have our hands in a little bit of everything. And, the, you know, the networking, the relationships like we, like we continue to talk about are, are so valuable and uh, in every regard, you know, if you need to reach out to someone, uh, Oh, no so, doubt. Yeah. And, and DS remains small enough that, it, you know, our LNOs all over the world and other students and other classes will run into someone and they'll say, Oh, do you know so-and-so? And of course the answer will be yes. And there's, there's not even seven degrees of separation. There's probably about two or three. Yeah. All right. So, Let's go to your next assignment. Where was that? Yeah. That was, hold on a minute. Did I skip defensive equipment and armored vehicles? No, that was after command and staff college. No, hold on a minute. I'm so confused. No, Algiers. See that 20 years in and I can't remember a darn thing. Um, Algiers, uh, RSO job in Algeria. Um, having, I, I, let me just say this. I think everybody has a tour that perhaps doesn't work out as well as you hoped it would. And for me, that was Algeria. And it, it was doing no, it was 
not due to anyone's fault. It was just circumstances were difficult. Um, we were among the first group of people to have families in a country that had long been closed off to families. And it was just a series of challenges that, that left us wondering, you know, if we, if we could actually do two years there or, or three years there. And, um, ultimately I ended up leaving there early. Um, which, you know, I still wonder if that was the right thing or the best thing to do so many years after it occurred. But in the end, it opened up an opportunity for me to be able to serve in Australia, which frankly was a once in a lifetime. And I, I came out of Australia uh, with a, a different set of experiences um, to serve in a class one mission, you know, in a country the size of the United States with three different consulates in Sydney, Perth, and Melbourne, the embassy being in Canberra. And so, you know, out of something difficult and challenging came something wonderful, which was also uh, the birth of my third child. My daughter um, happened and occurred in Australia. And I just, you know, I look back at that time and I think, man, it's what an amazing country, amazing people, uh, amazing opportunity to do some pretty crazy things. Um, circling back to, my time in uh, the Marine Command and Staff College, the Marines were opening up a joint base with the Australians up in the Northern Territory. A number of my Command and Staff College buddies were uh, a part of that initial group. And so there were connections there. So, you know, everything does come full circle. And so my time in Australia was a fantastic three years. Um, I was called for the, I never believed it would ever happen, but I was referred to as a Sheila a couple times. <laughs> um, saw crocodiles, did all the typical Australian things, but uh, came to recognize the deep and profound partnership that the United States has with Australia and um, could not have appreciated it more uh, when we were you know, asking the Aussies to do some difficult things with us in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, um, and all of that funneled through the embassy and, and the partnership with the, the police there and just a lot of fun, a lot of great people, a lot of shared um, goals and values. And so it, it turned out to be a fantastic tour. Big fan of the Aussies. Um, I imagine that had to be extremely competitive. That's got to be one of the most competitive assignments, right? For I mean, there's only one RSO. Not like a few ARSOs, right? And uh, you'd be surprised. You know, I think what what scares folks about Australia, and look, scary is probably not the right word. Is it's isolating. You're very, very far away. You know, if you originate your your time in Washington D.C., it takes you five to six hours to get to L.A., and that's another thirteen hours to Sydney, and then it's another three hours car drive down to Canberra. Okay, that makes <laughs> that's sense. A, that could that could be a big turnoff to a lot of folks. But as far as a once in a lifetime opportunity for my family, for the work to expand my portfolio of experiences, again, to be in a class one mission with a political appointee ambassador. It was phenomenal. Yeah. That sounds amazing. What, uh, okay. So after, after Canberra, what's next? Defensive equipment and armored vehicles. So cars, trucks, guns, body armor, ammunition, equipment essentially the quartermaster for ds okay yeah i loved it and and you just you were the chief there right so you had yes. oversight of uh, a group of individuals mostly 
is it would you consider it mostly logistics, right? Getting this and thing lo- out the and logistics too, but certainly not to take away from the very important role of our diplomatic courier service. Yeah, a lot of it was getting shipments ready and, and ensuring that things got to where they needed to go. Um, it was at a time when we were developing commercially available off-the-shelf um, MRAP-capable, MRAP-spec vehicles, but you know, uh, using uh, commercial vendors to do it. There's a lot of advancements in linking us up with the special operations fields for body armor and equipment. Um, I, I, I would put DS up against any other federal law enforcement organization with the amount time, effort, and energy that we spend fielding equipment and the quality of that equipment. I think we are second to none. Um, I think that we are innovative in what we do because of our mission. You know, we have criminal investigations protection and then our overseas work and not necessarily are able to find one size that fits all. But I think that we invest in the safety and the well-being of our agents, particularly in our, our, our personnel and the, in the quality of the, of the equipment that we push out to the field. Um, and I just, I really enjoyed again, you know, I think in the Marine Corps, the terminology the Marine Corps uses is, you know, counting the beans and bullets. I, I think that, there's value yeah. in that too, particularly because what I did uh, every day directly supported our folks doing some very difficult things in some pretty challenging environments. Plus, I mean, who doesn't like to get to, who who doesn't welcome the opportunity to sort of play with cars and and guns and and I uh, you know I grew up in a in a family where, you know, my father was a mechanic in order to get his way through college. And so I knew a little bit about cars from him and I just found it all very, very interesting and fascinating and and fun. And I was very impressed, you know, with the innovation of our, our, our commercial partners and how they were able to do things. And, uh, you know, arguably it wasn't perfect, but it was pretty darn good for, you know, for the little engine that could the diplomatic security service to feel the commercially available MRAP uh, capable type vehicle was for for less money and faster was pretty pretty downright impressive. Yeah, I would I would say you know I agree when it comes being second to none, particularly in the again I'm biased. We're both biased, but right, uh, you've seen it firsthand, and our overseas mission sets us apart. I mean, we're in, we're in traditional posts, we're in you know obviously high threat posts, and no one does what we do, and that's what I keep promoting on this whether the podcast or the social media or my book, the no one does does what we do, and we are still relatively unknown, and there's a number of reasons for that, maybe. Um, but when you put us to a place where in a place we're effective, and we have, uh, I think, coming from the Marine Corps where we didn't have top of the line gear, particularly pre nine eleven, uh, in DS I had excellent gear and it continued to get better and upgraded and uh more modern and lighter to carry and more effective and uh you know we just continue to evolve in that area so it's it's how i saw it from a ground level agent uh you know being the recipient of of equipment and utilizing equipment it's it's funny to hear you say that because you know no good deed goes unpunished. And after defensive equipment and armored vehicles, I had a long talk with my husband and I said, look, 
if I'm going to continue to, at that point, I think I'd been promoted to FS1, which is, you know, equivalent to, to GS15, uh, I think, what, full, full, full bird kernel linear type of, of track. I said, look, if I'm going to continue to, to take on leadership roles and responsibilities, I said, I, I, I can't be a hypocrite. I said, I, I got to punch my ticket in Iraq or Afghanistan. And we had a long conversation about it. And he decided, you know, we decided together that it was time for me to go. And I, I um, ultimately went out to Afghanistan. And circling back around to the equipment piece, you talk about, you know, our equipment and whatnot. And I remember uh, I had the portfolio that covered all of our regional operations. And so I would be out in the field quite a bit. I'd be out in Helmand or Kandahar up in Mazari Sharif or Herat. And so every time you travel to these places, you had to get on embassy aircraft. And, and, and of course, they had to weigh you to make sure you were okay. And you talk about the equipment. I got on the scale and I was on about 60, had 65 pounds of equipment on my body, all issued by DS. It wasn't extra stuff that I had decided to tack on. It was, you know, your your first aid kit. It was your your SPE, your, your magazines, your body armor, your helmet. It was pretty, when you just the sheer volume of it was pretty impressive. Yeah. What, what years were you in Kabul, Julie? Uh, 13 to 14. 13 to 14. Was, was the Harat attack during that time frame? Yes, it was. It was within my first month of being at post. And that, oh, wow. and that to me, I think um, I would say to you, if there was ever a better example, and the second example would be the recent attack in Iraq uh, over the Christmas holiday, was DS's ability for self-defense. Um, I mean, the, just watching it unfold and seeing it happen and seeing how well everybody did up there and, and no loss of of life uh, on the side of the Americans to include our third country national guards and our personnel. Um, again, consummate professionals, execution, fine execution of the defense plan. There were the, all the planning that went into it. I mean, I just, I look at that and I go, you know, when the rubber met the road, DS was there waiting and knew what they were doing very proud of the outcome of that unfortunate that it occurred, but also incredibly proud of how well that was, was handled and anyone that was there and anyone that was responding and, and uh, just amazing, you know, it could have gone very wrong and it didn't. And that's a testament to the professionalism of the people on the ground. Could you let's stay on that a little bit because I think that's it's pretty interesting and the listeners will enjoy because not everyone knows about the Herat attack um, and obviously without compromising any any opsec or anything I, I think there's a report out on it you could probably read it somewhere but could you give an overview about like what happened you know from start to finish and and any other details that you may think uh, are interesting well you know what's in the public domain essentially captures the following timeline and that was very early in the morning um, the embassy uh, was the victim of a complex attack that started with a vehicle-borne improvised explosive device and when you say vehicle think in terms of a large construction type truck a dismounted attack from a follow-on vehicle 
um, the response came in multiple levels. Uh, third country national guards held their ground, cleared American personnel from the worldwide protective services contract arrived. RSO personnel led the counter assault. Um, there was just significant, overwhelming devastation to the consulate physical infrastructure. Um, and again, the orchestrated response, the level of professionalism to repel the attack that led to no loss of life um, was, was, I think, for me personally, um, incredibly moving profile. You know, just here your, your, your colleagues are doing what you hope never happens, but they're doing so in such a way as they are completely dedicated, all in, selfless. They know what's on the line. They are, they are there to, to make it stop. And I just hold up in high regard and have great respect for how that was handled and executed. And, um, you know, the, the community effort to treat the wounded when they were done, um, knowing full well that these guys were essentially on their own, you know, in the absence of host government or host nation support, they just rose to the challenge. They, and they responded wholly and without hesitation and, you know, every, anyone, whether you're prior military law enforcement, if you're a first responder in any capacity, perhaps an emergency room doctor, all the, all the things you can think of, of, you know, this moment of we've trained for this, we know what we're doing and now it's time to execute. And I think that, that, that was no more, uh, evident than that day in, in itself. Um, and that's, you know, it's a bit of a nutshell and I'm, I, I don't want to get into too many more specifics on it, but I can just tell you that. No, that's fine. Yeah. DS, DS absolutely did what it should have done that day. That's great. No, that's enough. Um, I know the RSO, uh, that yep. was there. We talked about this earlier and, uh, he was one of my first supervisors. Um, and, uh, a guy that is prepared just in his average everyday life. Uh, and so I imagine he was really prepared there and, uh, I'll need to get him on the podcast eventually. Um, you know, to, to talk about I what think, he can talk I think, about. You know, if, if you can do that and have him talk about that day, it's, it's a story that will live in infamy in, in the history of DS. It's just that it was that, uh, critical. Yeah. Anything else happened in Kabul worth noting? Uh, I mean, there's a lot that happens in Kabul, but, uh, you know, were you guys safe the rest of the time? Um, any other major issues? You know, I, th- I think in that period of time, we had a relative level, and I say relative, you know, because of, of Kabul being Kabul, a relative level of safety there. Um, but you saw the beginnings of or the inklings of things just – starting to deteriorate, particularly the, you know, the host nation security services were, were really, I think the focus, a lot of, of the attacks. And you saw, um, a lot of the, what we refer to in our lexicon and terminology, the soft targeting of, of locations that, you know, uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, international hospitals, et cetera. I think you started to be, that was the beginning of things, 
taking a bit of a turn for them. And it was, it was, it was challenging because these are the very things that I think the country of Afghanistan needed the most, which was the investment in, in infrastructure and, and, and quality care that, and unfortunately the, you know, the bad guys felt it was appropriate to run those people out of town to what end. I don't know. I don't, I don't purport to be able to read their minds, but uh, for the most part, you, you saw things heading in that direction. This was at a time too, where the United States was starting to, to uh, re- reduce its footprint. So you saw, you know, places like, um, Camp Leatherneck and Helmand going away, uh, Kandahar uh, downsizing uh, after the attack in Herat. We closed our consulate there, uh, as well as our presence in Mazari Sharif. And on um, you know, on the auspices that things were shifting away from perhaps an international conflict, in conflict, pardon me, to perhaps an internal conflict, uh, and the emphasis was on the the backbone of the government, the elected government to, to step in and, and execute its duties as they were elected to do. And, and I, I would say for the most part, um, I felt relatively safe there and I moved around a lot. I got out of the city quite a bit. I was moving from location to location. Um, but there certainly were some underlying risks. Uh, but you saw mostly the attacks occurring um, against host, host nation entities or equities. And, of course, our concern was very much of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And that's ebbed and flowed in the years, intervening years since. And, you know, I, I would absolutely go back there again and work there if I had to. I think that there's uh, strong, compelling reasons to keep our U.S. embassy there and, and to – work through the diplomatic process and, you know, depending on where we are politically, et cetera, that may or may not occur and, and we'll continue to, to, to provide support. DS will continue to provide support to the embassy to make sure folks there can do what they need to do and stay safe doing it. Very good. What was next? I came back and I ran the uh, Dignitary Protection Division, so Oversight for, you know, you and I talked a little bit about the United Nations General Assembly uh, and all visiting foreign dignitaries that uh, rise to the level of internationally protected persons would come through my office for assessment evaluation and then assignment of a protective detail, which I think a lot of people you know, we talked about the mission of DS. I think the general public may not be privy to the fact that we do do so much protection and not every visit to the United States is a presidential or prime ministerial level visit that would fall to the secret service, but rather fall to DS for support. And I loved it. I have a soft spot for protection. I really enjoyed my time there. Um, I, I enjoyed the inner workings of the, uh, of what happens behind the scenes and I think one of the unique parts about protection, which a lot of people fail to to recognize or or perhaps underestimate, is that you know the agent in charge of the protective details based out of Washington, and I may assign him or her to run a detail out in Houston. And so, what I'm asking that individual to do is to get to Houston, pull the agents from the Houston offices or, you know, the offices in Texas form a small unit that's tactically proficient in a matter of days, 
so that when their protectee arrives, everything is seamless. They are essentially the gray person. You know, they're behind the scenes, albeit ever present, and get this internationally protected person in and out of the United States safely and allow that individual facilitate, enable that individual to do their job while they're here. And people go, well, what's challenging about that? And the reality is, is that that agent in charge has to take people that are unknown to him or her and has to build that team cohesion, albeit off the baseline of, of the same level of, of training. But we're, we're oftentimes asked to do that in a very short order. And I just, I love the inner workings of that. I loved seeing these details executed. I loved seeing the smoothness, the fluidity, the, the genuine um, enjoyment that came out of, of these types of details. Again, my soft spot for protection is perhaps romanticizing it a little bit, but it was just uh, an assignment where I felt very proud because it, we were the outward face for diplomatic security. We were the people standing next to the protectee. We were the ones that were, again, enabling their work to be done while they were here. Um, plus, there's the element of working with different embassies of different resources and staffing. And, you know, on one hand, you may have an embassy that relies on DS because we provide everything nose to tail protection wise to include transportation, et cetera. And then you have other embassies that say, oh, the armored Cadillacs that you provide us are not good enough for our protectee. Please drive our armored Bentley. And it's like, okay, twist my arm. I think we could do that for you. Not a problem. You know, sign the car over to us for five days. We're happy to be the caretaker for that vehicle. So, um, <laughs> you know, it just there, there was a, a spectrum of application of things that really made the job very, very interesting. And I made it a point to go out and, you know, do some quality control on my agents in charge and check up on them when they were out in detail, meet, you know, the staff from the embassies that they were working with to make sure that they were happy with the level of support that they were getting. And um, the folks that worked for me, and I had some incredibly strong agents in, in dignitary protection when I was there, were just outstanding. They took great pride in their work. They were fun funny, uh, great leaders to, uh, oftentimes protection was delegated down to the newer cadre of agents on the job. They were great mentors and leaders to agents who were, who were still building their portfolio portfolio and gaining a lot of experience in DS. And so it made the, it made my job very easy at times. And I enjoyed it again. Uh, thematically I would sign up and do it all over. To what year were you there, Julie? That was uh, 2014 to 2016. It was really the one and only job that I wanted out when I came home from Afghanistan. And I just, I welcomed the opportunity. I knew the, the supervisory leadership and the Office of Protection. I knew that these were people that I could work with. Um, and I, I pursued that job very hotly. It was my one and only job that I really, truly wanted. And it was, it, it didn't disappoint. I loved my two years there. It was just fun. It was frustrating at times. And, you know, oftentimes protection can be used as a bit of a bargaining chip as you are working with, uh, you know, various governments. But at the same time, too, it, it is the outward face of DS. It was important. There's value to it. 
protection is is really the the door opener for a lot of diplomacy and and we gladly provided it and we did so very professionally i was in san diego when i think it was apac or asean uh conference came down to palm springs and i worked with one of your guys there on the uh vietnamese protection detail yes um so i'm, I'm assuming you were there then because i was in san diego from 15 to 17 um but, yeah, uh, that would have probably yeah. that was in the fifteen to sixteen time frame, and one of the things that I I tried to emphasize was let's get people on these details that you know it makes sense to put people you know if I've got a German speaking AIC of course she's going to get the German foreign minister why not right and so that that was that was important to me. Well, that makes a ton of sense, but you know the government dolls work that way. No. <laughs> if you have a language, you speak German, they might send you to you know somewhere in Africa, uh, yeah. vice versa. But, but that makes sense for sure. I will tell what, you, uh, my one indulgence in the Office of Dignitary Protection, and I've never done this before. I'm not an autograph chaser. I'm not a, a photo chaser. So I left my yeah, I left the Office of Dignitary Protection in the spring of 2016. And again, not an autograph chaser, not a photography chaser by any stretch of the imagination. But um you know, the Dalai Lama is near and dear to DS. I think every DS agent cuts their teeth on protecting the Dalai Lama. And he was in the United States. And I said, I went to my boss at the time and I said, look, say no, no harm, no foul. I said, would you object if I put a request in for the Dalai Lama to, for my kids to meet the Dalai Lama? He goes, no, not at all. He goes, if there's ever a protectee that's not going to be put out by that kind of request, it would be him. And I said, okay. I said, look, if it works out, it's great. If it doesn't, Again, no harm, no foul. And so, obviously, over the course of time, DS has developed a very close relationship with him and his staff. And we we worked the request very sort of uh, from a protocol perspective. And 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 we, there was no investment. They absolutely had the right to say no. And the Dalai Lama was very gracious. And the answer came directly from him. He said, "No, no, I would love to meet your children." And this is the first and only time in my career I'd ever done that. And so we, we, we suited ourselves up and I explained to the kids what was going to happen. And I explained to them who they are. I sent them on their, their merry way a few days in advance to do some research on this guy. And said, you need to know who he is. You need to know why he's important. And I said, you know, and they were nervous. They were, they asked, you know, uh, what should, how should we dress him? I said, you can address him his, you know, your holiness or what have you. I said, but understand it's going to be very quick. It's going to be, you know, kind of through a receiving line in a hotel lobby. He's got other people, other things to do. I said, so this is not going to be a long protracted thing. And they said, okay, we got you. And so we suit ourselves up and, you know, do a family trek into Washington DC one day we're waiting and his staff recognized me. They came over, they chatted. They're like, oh yeah, he knows you're here. He'll become, you know, and I had the AIC or excuse me, the advance agent. I said, you, you tell me where I need to be. And trying to be out of the way, but also recognizing that my, for my kids, this was like a once in a lifetime opportunity for them. Sure enough, he comes in, you know, I'm, I'm watching my kids. I can tell they're nervous. He comes right over to us, you know, and he has a number of different ways of greeting people. And depending on the level of greeting, you, you might get the handshake, you might get the sort of hand on the shoulder, or you might get the whole forehead rub. Well, he absolutely just, He's so gracious. He grabs my kids and he forehead rubs all three of them. And they're just 
blown away. And then he turns him around and he says, we have to have a picture. We have to have a picture. And so he takes a picture with all of us. My husband's included in that. And, you know, I, again, never having asked for this in my career, I felt really sort of awkward about the ask in the first place, but I also knew that if there was ever a person to do it, it would be him. And he was so outstanding to this day. The kids talk about it and like, you know, they just, he was looking at each of the kids and he would make, he made a comment on all three and he particularly took a shine to my middle son and just spent a moment kind of looking at my middle son and chatting with him. And, and I, you know, if, if I could ever take one memory from DS, it would be that day. It was how this job had permeated so much of my life to include my personal life that it allowed this opportunity for my children to meet one of these, the most iconic religious figures in the world and how for them, this was, you know, a once in a lifetime experience. It's where both of the worlds came together, personal and professional and, and in albeit I, I, again, in a very professional way, at any point in time, this thing could have been turned off and we would have happily gone on our merry way, but he, you know, Dalai Lama was gracious and he delivered and, I think back to that now and I realize that under no circumstances ever in my life would that have ever happened if I, if it hadn't been for my chosen career and the commitment that I made in March of 1999. And if my, if I had to leave DS any day after that, from that point forward, I would have absolutely not regretted a single day. And it, I, I still feel a level of gratitude for that job at that time, being in that place at that time, because it gave my family a once in a lifetime opportunity that again, they would have never had. Yeah, what an amazing story. You, um, I think as DS agents, I, I know I did. I, I was same as you. I was, I was trigger shy. I didn't want to, whether it be a camera, a picture with the Dalai Lama, or even if I'm just on a really cool protection detail with a congressional yeah. delegation in Baghdad, you don't want to whip out the camera. And in particular, if you're the AIC or you're the head of an organization of, of, of the unit, because you want to, you want to lead. You want to lead by example. You want to be professional. Right. And you know, there's times I, you know, in Erbil where we're on the on the front lines with ISIS, and I, I really wish I took the pictures with when we we're up there. And and uh, you know, and some of my guys did, and I was I was okay with it. Uh, but I think it's important that you did that because now look at what you can talk about, what you can look back on, right. and uh, you know, that's awesome. And if any current younger DS agents are listening now, that uh, that would be the one regret I had is to you know document this a little better. You know all the things that uh, uh, that I and my short ten years in, and those that go on longer like yourself to document it a little better. You know, and you I, got I couldn't agree with you more. I could kick myself for perhaps not being better about that, but I also even to this day struggle with the, the impression of perhaps impropriety or, or just, you know, not being professional and, and oftentimes for better, or for worse, erred on the side of caution. Yeah. Same. Very good. Yeah. Okay. So, so after dignitary protection, I did a 180 and threw myself headlong into uh, the world of contracting. And that was the Overseas Protective Operations Worldwide Protective Services contract, which is the mechanism by which we source all of our um, protective security apparatus for particularly high threat posts like Iraq and, Iraq and Afghanistan. 
so it's both the static world of, of host nation, or excuse me, third country national guards and that of the movement team. So you're cleared American personnel that are, you know, moving our principles around these countries. And I did that for two years and it was incredibly challenging just learning the, the massive contracting world and what it takes to take the concept of this type of protection and translate it into actual execution. Um, you know, as I look sort of at the twilight of my career being as far into it as I am and being as close as I am to the, the, the age of 50, I think about what skill sets make me the most marketable um, outside of DS. And I think that perhaps the two years that I spent working in the worldwide protective services, um, I think that those, that time was incredibly well spent um, in acquiring that type of skill set of uh, understanding a very challenging, nuanced contract that was volumes big and long. And later in life, you know, shortly thereafter, um, about a year and a half into my tour, just shy of that, the then director of diplomatic security and I had a long conversation. And I said to him, I said, look, it's time for me to head back out again. You know, my family is doing very well here in the U.S. I don't see myself doing another traditional RSO tour, but I still have some run left in me. And I think, you know, it's time for me to look at going back to Iraq or Afghanistan. And he was gracious enough at the time. And he said, well, you pick. You're, it's up to you what you want to do next. And I recognized, and I, you know, we thus far really haven't, we've talked a little bit about it, but I recognized that in the history of our reopening of the embassy, U.S. Embassy in Baghdad in 2003 to present at the time, so this was, you know, 2000, late 2017, 2016, 2017 timeframe, um, we had not yet had a senior female regional security officer out there. And I'd been to Afghanistan and I'd been to Pakistan already. And I thought, well, let's round out the trifecta. And I threw my name in the hat to go to Iraq, knowing full well that that was more than likely going to be my last overseas tour. It would be my seventh embassy, my sixth, excuse me, my fifth time as an RSO, having served as a deputy in Afghanistan and an ARSO in Kinshasa. And I, I wanted to go out with a bang and knowing that it was going to be a time when I would be solo whereby my family would yet again stay home without me, I was ready. I fully committed to going to Iraq and I was all in and I spent a lot of that time, you know, both working, you know, doing the worldwide protective services piece, but also with a focus to building what I would consider to be an outstanding team to make that year in Iraq the best it could be not knowing that that year would also be the path that Iraq took a bit of a downturn based on, um, you know, the maximum pressure campaign that the United States adopted towards its policy in Iran and how a lot of that would end up playing out in Iraq. And it would be considerably more dangerous than it had been in previous years and, and on the glide path, even more dangerous in subsequent years. So um, for me as a, as an agent, as an RSO, as a believer in the mission of DS and as someone who was, who considers themselves to be incredibly dedicated to the, to the job, that was probably the pinnacle of my career up to that point. 
Um, it's a massive embassy physically. It's a massive embassy uh, personnel-wise. You oversee, you know, a billion dollars a year and a cadre of, of, of personnel that, you know, is a brigade size element as it compares to the military. You've got, at the time, we had Embassy Baghdad, Consulate Erbil, and Consulate Basra. During my tenure there, Consulate Basra was closed. We closed it down in 18 days, which was unheard of. Um, and the, 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 the environment, the threat environment, the, the increase in IDF, et cetera, indirect fire was palpable and prevalent, but yet we still managed to execute over 10,000 moves in a year and host the largest ever private business investment uh, through the American Chamber of Commerce. Um, you know, we, we were authorized and, and uh, decided to, to support them with a significant security program to keep American business people safe in, in Iraq. And we did all of that on, on my watch. And I mean, to say that I was proud of that year is uh, if there was, if I could find a word other than proud, I would use it, but I just, what a year and what an amazing, profoundly impactful year of just balancing a deteriorating security situation with the need to commit to a country no more so than ever. And I had great leadership at the embassy. I had the opportunity to be the acting deputy chief of mission during my tenure. I felt like RSO was, was the, to some degree, the backbone of the community. Um, everything from priding myself on, on sitting down and having dinner every night with the people that worked with me and for me um, to, to, being present when significant and, and impactful decisions were being made in order to represent the equities, not only of the regional security office, but that of the, yeah. I couldn't have asked for a better year. I couldn't have asked for a better team. And once again, thematically, I would do it all over again if asked. And, uh, I, I don't, re I, I, I missed my family terribly. Don't get me wrong, but I also don't regret having had that opportunity as well, which is a, a tight, a tough balance, you know, particularly as having been the first female RSO, senior RSO there in the history of the reopening since 2003. It's not lost on me that perhaps the success or failure of my program would have been evaluated against me perhaps as a, as a gender issue. But I never let that overwhelm me to the point where I was paralyzed in my ability to make decisions and do what I felt was the most important in the best interest of the Department of State, of the embassy, of DS. Um, I was there to make it work. I was there to enable diplomacy, and damn it, it was going to happen, and we were going to do it well, and we were going to do it to the best of our ability. And I was there 365 days, and I don't regret a single day of it. Given the massive role and responsibilities of senior RSO in Baghdad, uh, that was very uh, succinctly, succinctly put, I think. Uh, Thank you. covered a lot there. Uh, that, yeah, that was great. Um, you know, and I, as a, I was there as a four. I was in Erbil as a three. And uh, we, we just don't know. You know, the, 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 the guys and girls there, the agents, uh, the contractors – we really don't have a grasp of the comprehensive kind of 
30,000 foot view that you and the, the deputies there have. I mean, we, we, we think we do, you know, we think we understand a little bit of, of it depending on, you know, what, uh, what group you're with, whether you're in the protective ops or, uh, you know, embassy ops or whatever. But, uh, to understand kind of the, the breadth of, of the uh, wide swath of what you get into as the RSO and the deputies is, uh, as I said, very succinctly put. So thank you for that. It was great. I, you know, I, I think back on it now and it was a tough year and, and I think tougher for my family who stayed home and I don't underestimate that, but, um, to have that level of commitment from every single agent that was there and, and to have their support. And I mean, I would take any one of those folks back with me if I would ever go and hopefully they would come with me. And, and to me, that's probably the, the, single biggest compliment than any one of them could have paid me, which was like, Hey, Julia, if you ever go back, please take me with you. And I would gladly grab, snatch any one of them up again and, and, and walk into any situation and know that we would figure it out. That's awesome. Yeah. So what next? So coming out of there, um, you know, you reach a certain level in the department of state and right now I'm, um, I'm a member of the Senior Foreign Service. My rank is OC Officer Counselor, which is roughly linearly to like a one star. So Senior Executive Service, um, Senior Foreign Service, they're synonymous. Um, and so I'm coming back and uh, a person who, with whom I have a great relationship and have an awful lot of respect for is our acting Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary, Carlos Matus. He reached out to me and he said, look, and I needed to take over intelligence and threat analysis. And I thought, well, excuse me, but sorry, <laughs> I'm not an analyst. Uh, but all right, let's give it a try. And so I took over the Office of Intelligence and Threat Analysis in the Directorate of Threat Investigations and Analysis. And I had been doing that for roughly uh, just shy of a year. And it's essentially an, an office that looks at all source threat reporting and comes up with assessments and um, and information that allows diplomatic security to make decisions about what's happening around the world and, and domestically. And you know what? I really liked it. For never having been in that world, I thought, this is phenomenal. The skill sets, the, the ability to, to spend time thinking about things is is really great in analyzing it and working with some incredibly talented, very smart people. And I really started to hit my stride and I liked the job and I was uh, considering, you know, my, my, my thought was to spend a third year in that domestic position and knew that I was going to get a lot out of it. And so I'm feeling comfortable and enjoying the work. And then a series of events occurred in the DS hierarchy and leadership and which then precipitated and required me to essentially feed up and to take over Carlos's job as the act. Now I'm the acting deputy director or there's no such title, but essentially acting deputy assistant secretary overseeing not only my, my previous job in in intelligence and threat analysis, but now also um, sitting in the capacity to oversee our rewards for justice program, the diplomatic security command center, the Office of Protective Intelligence, the Office of Open Source Information and Open Source Intelligence, 
what am I forgetting here? Command Center, ITA, RFJ, PII, OSIN, and Overseas Security Advisory Council, OSAC. Um, and so it's really in the amalgamation of information and the importance of information under one directorate, which is where I'm, I'm sitting at the moment. We take this, this concept of information and try to pull it together in such a way as that we provide the backbone of information for DS leadership to be able to make decisions affecting the Bureau, affecting the Department of State. And again, coming out of Baghdad, which was a lot of operations and tactics, um, this is much more uh, promulgating the idea of protect and prevent informed intelligence and law enforcement and security-based decisions that I think um, are required in this day and age. And so um, continuing to learn, continuing to love what I do, continuing to build new skill sets that I previously didn't have, which is the beauty of DS is, you know, every couple of years you get to learn and do something different. And um, it, I wake up every day excited to try to go in and figure out what the new, new set of challenges may be. And it's a job that allows me to touch just about every other directorate within the bureau. So it keeps me well and well connected to my colleagues. And as we try to advance DS into the, the next 10 years, 20 years, 30 years of its, of its uh, being. So I'm very fortunate to have been in the right place at the right time and ostensibly have the support of senior leadership to, to take over this position, albeit in an acting capacity until things settle down politically and we get new people named and confirmed and know that, you know, I'm going to give it my best shot for as long as they need me to do it. And hopefully uh, look back over the breadth of my career and, pick and choose everything that's applicable to what I'm currently doing and try to use it to the betterment of the, the job and the, and, and the, the bureau itself. So you're at, you know, the highest echelons of the DSS. Uh, what, what's next after this? Like what, what does someone at your level do? You just kind of jump around at the same level. If you get promoted, I understand you could maybe move up and position. Uh, how's it work? Well, ultimately, the deputy assistant secretary positions have to require a level of, of scrutiny and confirmation. You know, just because I'm acting in this position now doesn't mean that it's mine, and I refuse to take anything for granted. Um, you know, from a perspective of age, I'm not yet eligible for retirement, so it's not something that I'm considering, although I am sort of on the backside of my career. I still have a commitment to this organization to, to sprint to the finish, whatever the finish may be, at whatever age that may be. You know, following, um, you know, a career in DS, I guess the question is, what is it that you want to do or what would I like to do? And I think a lot of that is going to be dictated by, you know, what my family needs from me, um, where we feel we need to be with our kids at the age they're at, which would be college age at that point. You know, are we up for a big move again? Do we like where we are? There's a lot of considerations. And I think, you know, one of the things we haven't touched on in this necessarily in our conversation over the past, you know, hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes or so is that, you know, there's there are jobs, there are careers, and then there's lifestyles. And I think DS falls sort of in between the career and the lifestyle piece. It's amalgamation of the two. And, you know, at a certain point, either you know, the decision is made that you're all in and, and whatever comes down the pike, you'll, you'll, you'll figure it out. Or, or there's circumstances that just compel people that 
that they recognize that they, it can't be a career or a lifestyle anymore and, and they have to make decisions and move on. And I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm very realistic to think that at a certain point, you know, a, when DS is, is uh, that lifestyle and that career has come to an end that perhaps I won't be a little bit more freed up to do things differently. And I've considered everything from, you know, turning my years of experience into a teaching certificate and figuring out how I find a job as a teacher somewhere to, uh, you know, going after that corporate security job. And the point is that I remain really undecided and open to just about everything or anything that I, that may come my way or anything that I may seek out. And it's nice to have a little bit of that freedom. And I think you get a little spoiled in DS because you know, every couple of years that you get to do something different and so, um, I, 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 can't, I don't know that I can imagine a time where that I, I, I don't enjoy a little bit of variety. And so I'm, I'm, I'm absolutely keeping all my options open and, and willing to just to consider just about anything in whatever capacity it may be. I hear what you're saying. Uh, well, yeah, I think you're an excellent representative for DS. You've done uh, a ton for the organization and uh, we covered a lot in nearly two hours you did a fantastic job and uh, let, let's end with this what um, what advice would you have for uh, new agents coming on um, in particular females like mm. what what advice would you give them as they consider uh, you know coming on to DS because you mentioned lifestyle and career any advice you have um, yeah. is welcomed. I was, well, before we, we go down that road, first thing I just want to say to you is, you know, thanks for the opportunity. Um, I'm a, I'm a all in true believer of what we do. And I hope that if anything is, is pervasive through this conversation today is that I, through the good and the bad, and it's been overwhelmingly good, love this organization, love my career, my chosen career path. I'm grateful to a long suffering family who's allowed me to live out this dream and indebted to my colleagues who have over the course of 20 years, just been outstanding and supportive and really uh, shown me what it's like to be a part of something so much bigger than one individual. So setting that aside and talking, speaking, speaking specifically to, to female agents and, and how you make this work, ultimately how it works is up to you. It's going to be hard and you're going to be faced with some incredibly challenging decisions. You're going to miss out on stuff. You're going to wish you could be in four different places when you can't be. You're going to have periods of doubt. You're going to have questions about whether or not you were passed over for things or, or you know, being judged based on your gender. Um, and that's not, unfortunately, it's not uncommon. You're going to have days where you are going to look at your colleagues and wonder why the heck they think it's appropriate to say perhaps some of the things that they say. And everybody has their own threshold and everybody has their own uh, uh, standards or bar by which they measure themselves and why the, when they measure others and to everyone, you know, to anyone along those lines is you, you have to come in knowing who you are. You have to come in knowing what that threshold is and you have to come in knowing and, and being willing to fight for what you believe is right. And the, and what you believe 
is the level of accountability that you want to see for yourself and for your colleagues. Um, I, I've never willingly, nor will I ever willingly compromise myself for my standards for what I feel is, you know, for this concept or idea of being accepted or to be one of the guys as it were. And I will tell you that for perhaps every one bad experience I've had, I've had countless wonderful, heartwarming, gratitude filled experiences with my colleagues. Um, I believe in the inherent goodness of people. And I believe that folks who perhaps are not fully aware of what they say or what they do as it relates to perhaps to EEO and other things are, are the first course of action is to do a little correction. If the correction doesn't work, then it's to allow the process to, to be undertaken and to allow that behavior to be, to, to be corrected, uh, in, in more official type channels. Um, I believe everybody is worthy of a second chance and I believe that everybody has the opportunity to excel when given the right tools, training and conditions to do so. And so as a, being a part of DS, female or not, I think that this, that DS has always been very good at saying, Hey, we've trained you. We, we, we've put you in the situation because we believe you're going to do well. Now go forth and conquer. They also give you the opportunity, and, and for folks that don't take advantage of this, it's at their own peril, to, to seek out that mentorship, that leadership, and ask those tough questions in order to get through the right answers. And I've never allowed my ego to stand in the way of getting help. And I think oftentimes, you know, again, female or not, we often fall victim to, I can't ask questions, I can't seek help because it's, it's weakness. And I would just caution anyone that thinks that they can do, they can spend a career and be successful and not show weakness or perceived weakness by seeking out help and, and surrounding yourselves with the experts is going to struggle. And female agents, you know, for those that are looking about at, at how to make it all work again, it's tough, but you figure it out. And, and I've, I've probably done some things better than others and I've probably been challenged by family issues and tried to do it all and maybe not been successful. But at the same time, too, I, I am grateful that um, my kids are resilient and my husband is supportive. And over the course of time, we've figured it out. And I look back over the past 20 years, which have passed in the blink of an eye and think to myself, I don't know that I would be who I am today without having had this amalgamation of personal professional satisfaction. And so I don't take it for granted. And the beauty of DS is you start with DS, you always have a home. And I think that should people decide to leave or female agents in particular don't see how they can balance professional and personal and they, they leave, they're still a part of the fold. They're still a part of the family and they're still recognized for the contributions that they've made for the, to the organization. And I think that's straight across the board, male or female. So from that perspective, I think DS has always been a, a kind accepting and supportive organization. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't change a thing. Um, having had gone through this in the last, you know, period of two decades. Well said. 
and uh, wise words. Uh, I would uh, agree with the uh, with all of it. And then the last uh, comment you made there about uh, part, being part of the family, I, I mentioned before the podcast that um, you know I had a DS agent that hired me. It took me a couple years to 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 land a, a good gig here in San Diego, <clears throat> and um, you know uh, DS agents stick together because we we know each other's capabilities, we know each other's you know what we Absolutely. kind of what we've been through, and um, you know and and since I've started this podcast, since I wrote the book, just general communication, whether it be on LinkedIn anywhere, everyone has been extremely supportive from the top echelons of DS. Like I said, you and I talked earlier to, to, you know, guys and girls that are just entering now in BSAC and, um, you know, and it is a family and, uh, I am proud to be a part of it. And, uh, I am thankful and proud that you came on the podcast to share your story. It's been my pleasure, Cody. It's my first ever podcast. So if this, if this is how they go, I'm, I'm welcome to doing them in the future. And, uh, I'm glad it worked out. I, I appreciate it. It's been great. Well, thank you again. And you know what? We might have to have you back because, uh, you know, we can maybe drill down on some of those posts and learn more. But uh, thank you very much for coming on. I'm going to stop recording now. Uh, uh, great. I'm going to stop recording now and uh, just sit tight real quick. Okay. All right. All right. Thank you, Julie Cabus, for coming on the podcast. And for those of you, who are interested in learning more about the Diplomatic Security Service, I happen to have written a book. Ain't that something? Agents Unknown, True Stories of Life as a Special Agent on the Diplomatic in the Diplomatic Security Service. It is available um, in paperback on my website, codyperron.com slash shop. Or you can get it in paperback on Amazon. You can get it in Kindle on Amazon. You can get it in Audible, um, um, audio format. Uh, on Amazon. It's sitting at 116 reviews, five-star, all four- and five-star reviews, and uh, really thankful for the, for the support for those of you that are interested in uh, you know continuing to learn more. I also make myself available. So those of you who are interested in uh, pursuing DS, you can follow me. You can go to my website, codyperron.com, C-O-D-Y-P-E-R-R-O-N.com, and there you can find YouTube videos. Everything is free. YouTube videos of me talking about the Diplomatic Security Service um, and all it has to offer, living, lifestyle, the career, um, you name it. Go ahead and check them out. I have like 20 or so videos up, so go check those out. Um, Also, you can find the podcast there. If you're listening to the podcast, you probably already found it. But if you choose to listen to it on the website, that's good. Also have a new tab. It's called Shop, so you can buy my book directly from... uh, from the website in which it'll come directly from me. Otherwise it's from Amazon. It's a print on demand type of thing. But if you want to buy it directly from me, uh, that's fine. That's great. Actually. Um, let me know and I'll go ahead and send it to you. If you want me to sign it or write something to you, uh, I'm always flattered when people ask to do that and I'll be happy to, to, to do that. So just go there, shoot me an email to info at Cody You can shoot me an email, say, Cody, I bought a book. Here's my freaking order. Uh, can you write something? Can you say this? Can you say that? Can you talk some shit in it? Whatever. I can do whatever it is you like um, in there, and I'll send it to you. And I'll add some, a little, little something extra in there if you, if you order directly from me uh, from the website. So go check it out. Uh, also on the website is my uh, Instagram, which is the social media that I'm most active on. Um, a little bit active. Oh, that's, I'm, I'm active on Facebook as well. 
Uh, but there's, there's, um, you know, that's those Facebook and Instagram are my two primary social media outlets. I'm not into the Snapchat and the TikTok thing. You don't want to see me on TikTok, man. Um, so, you know, I'm not into that. I don't do much on Twitter either. But follow me on Instagram. You'll see some pictures. You'll see me talking. I put a lot of kind of, I do scenario based stuff. Um, you know, if something happens in the world, like what would you do type situations? Um, you know, I want to talk about personal safety, security, and then just reminisce about time in the department, time being a special agent. Um, I got people that submit photos and we put those up. But, and uh, anyway, I think it's I think it's pretty cool. So check it out. Uh, also started making or starting to develop some apparel. So I put a, a hoodie out. It's a high threat protection hoodie. It says high threat protection getting you off the X because I'm funny, right? Uh, but anyway, check that out. That's on the website. It will be on the website. Not yet. It'll be on the website by the end of this week. And today is Monday. Um, will be October, October 12th. So by the end of the week, you'll have the opportunity to buy the hoodie. If you want to see what it looks like, go to my Instagram because that's where it is. You'll see it. Um, yeah. And that's about it. So info at codyperron.com. If you have questions, just want to connect, uh, go, Oh, Facebook. Facebook, I have a group. I started a group many, many moons, a.k.a. months ago. Uh, it's called Becoming a DSS Agent. And I am very, uh, I'm pretty pumped about the group. I don't even do much. You guys get on there. If you're, if you're interested in becoming a DSS agent, you can get there, get in there and ask some questions. And it's pretty cool because I have a lot of guys and girls that are active in DS that have joined the group and are willing to share uh you know the responses or answers to some of your questions that they know um and uh really good dudes and girls they would do that they i mean they don't have to right they're taking the the time out of their day to do that and you know before i came on when i came on a ds back in 2008 and even till now there's a lot of misinformation out there and there's hardly besides the misinformation there's not any information at all um, or, you know, besides what you see on the website, which to some of you guys leaves a lot of you wondering about the lifestyle and career. And you heard Julie talk about, uh, lifestyle and career in the podcast. So that's a great opportunity to connect and build a network. And let me tell you whether you're in DS or you get out of DS and corporate security world, just life in general networking is important. So, um, come on and join us, fill out the questions. Um, if I don't know you, I'm not going to go research. I'm not going to click on your profile and start saying, "Oh, well, let me look and see if this guy's worth, you know, guy or girl's worthy to get in." Just fill out the questions, all right? Then I'll, you know, I'll likely approve you, uh, and uh, you know, we'll go from there. So anyway, thanks everyone for listening. Greatly appreciate it. Again, hit me up if you got any questions. And uh, for now, I'll take off. Thanks, y'all. Out. <laughs>